Denver's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the founder of Card Player Lifestyle, who I am welcoming back for a very special round two, Robbie Straczynski. In case you missed it, Robbie was guest number two way back in late 2019 when Chasing Poker Greatness was just toddling around. Despite being one of the most positive and upbeat humans I know, the weight of COVID isolation has managed to crack even Robbie's spirit at times, and in our conversation, we're going to dive deeply into his struggles with mental health and just how amazing the poker community really is. In today's episode, you're also going to learn Robbie and I's thoughts on the life and recent death of Sheldon Adelson, the Titans who are Robbie's greatest influences in his poker journalism career, why Robbie has stayed at poker's periphery when it comes to playing, despite this game we all love being his professional life's work, and much, much more. And before you dive into today's episode, if you'd like to support Chasing Poker Greatness while also taking the necessary first step towards playing winning cash game poker, Preflop Bootcamp fires up on the last Saturday of every month. The place to check it out is ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp. So without any further ado, I bring to you the host of The Orbit and founder of CardPlayerLifestyle.com, Robbie Straczynski. Robbie, welcome back to the show, my friend. How you doing? Good to see you, Brad. Good to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It's been quite a long time. You're guest number two in what seems like many, many many years ago at least 18 um, years ago by at, now. yeah at least 18 years ago now but in actuality it was really like 14 months ago it wasn't actually that long it just feels like a really long time and it's really great to have you back and um i wanted to start out by really asking you something that i'm curious about myself and you're not really a card player right like you've never played cards at a high level um it's never been an aspiration no, not to become a professional. I enjoy playing, but never professional. Yeah, and so I was wondering, why stay on the periphery of a game that you've never pursued yourself at a high level? All right, so that's a really good question. So I think the first thing to answer is that I really do play what I would consider to be relatively often for a recreational player. I've been playing in my home game for, you know, probably about once a week, sometimes twice a week for a good 15, 20 years. Um, and I'm talking about a live home game. I had played online for maybe a couple years and stopped that a while ago. Um, but as far as like getting my fix and I really do love the game. If it's like, Robbie, what do you want to do for fun? If you got some time free? Oh, I wish I could get a game. So I really do love playing. And as much as I'm very much on the media side of things, um, I really do enjoy playing the game. And there's plenty of other media folks who I know, and I've been surprised by the answers. Oh, I don't really get to play too much. It surprises me. Like, how could you not also play? So that's the first part. Um, secondly, there was a time, you know, I was 21 years old when Chris Moneymaker won his, you know, World Series of Poker main event bracelet in, in 2003. And, you know, I also had that dream. Oh, my God, I want to be under the lights and I want to, you know, hold those bricks of cash. And you know, everyone wants that. At some point, pretty quickly, I realized that that isn't going to happen. It was kind of like a two strike kind of thing. Number one was as far as like the online bit. And like, oh, I was like playing cash games, like really, really low st micro stakes, like one cent, two cent, five cent, 10 cent at some point. And I realized like, you know, as good as I was doing, sometimes I want $100. I'm like, Robbie, you're not going to make a living doing this. Right? You're not playing steps tournaments to win satellite seats, right? So that's the first, like, you know, reality hits you in the head. 
Number two, it's like, well, you live in Israel. There's no real poker going on here. This is the life you've chosen for could yourself. I, could I challenge step number one? Please where, do. Where you weren't playing the step tournaments. What, what prevented you from taking your shot and moving up and taking Lack it more seriously? Of money. I was <laughs> <laughs> Lack of money. I was 21 years old. So at that point in time, and I'll get to the second. I'll, I'll, you know, let me re- revisit this in a second. The second and much more important ingredient was I was already, so to speak, a family man. I got married when I was 20. I started having kids when I was 26, but I was already married uh, at 20 years old. Um, So that, you know, to, to revisit that, it's the idea of, you know, you're already married. Your time isn't 100% your own. That much more so also when you have kids, you can't just sit in hours and hours and hours long tournaments. You can squeeze in a cash game session here and there that sort of a thing online. Um, but quite frankly, and, and very honestly, you know, when I was in my early and mid twenties, I really didn't have much money at all. You know, living here in Israel, the standard incomes and expenses are, you know, sorry, the income is certainly lower. The expenses tend to be the same, um, but uh, you know, fresh out of college, um, you know, my first job, I still remember I was making the equivalent of, less than $2,000 a month, uh, which was basically enough to cover expenses, couldn't save anything. And my dad was helping us out a little bit in the beginning too. And my wife was still in college as well. So we met each other when we were 16, you know, kind of, and we got married at 20. It, it, pursuing poker as a profession at that time was just not even within the realm of, of what seemed normal and, and possible. It was very much, let's go the conventional road, get the job, work your way through, you know, whatever sort of world, you know, and, and, and make, uh, and just make money to live. That That's basically it. And it's not just about not having the time or your time not being your own, right? Your responsibilities change when you're looking out for someone else and you have to take that variable into consideration. That's just a kind of a game changer where, instead of being young and being okay with just total self-destruction and losing right. every penny to your name and just being able to get a job and save more money up, like you have family responsibilities at, at a very young age, and that's just a, a different thing. I, I would say that you know it's not impossible to spend a lot of time playing poker as a married human being, uh, even with kids, but you're probably not going to be the greatest of husband or the greatest of father <laughs> if, if that is something that you're, you're spending all your time doing. That's true. And I'll say now, you know, it's almost ironic in a way. I'm married for 18 and a half years now. I've got three kids, uh, 13, 11, and eight and a half. And thankfully, you know, doing okay right now financially and in a much better position. I would say, ironically, now, if I were to want to try, if I were to want to give it a shot, I'd be far better positioned to do so in every possible aspect. I self-employed, work for myself, financially stable enough to take some shots here and there, you know. Were is I it in you? Want, pardon me? Is it in you? Do you want to, do you want to pursue that? Do you have the, that thought? No, not to do for a living, but I would like, you know, I kind of have like bucket list ideas of places to travel, that sort of thing. I would like to see, oh, what, wouldn't it be cool to try for a year? Uh, but not online. First of all, you can't really do that online from here, uh, not legally. But I, it would be really cool. To, that doesn't to, stop yeah. people, Robbie. You know? I'm aware. <laughs> I'm not, live and let live. I'm very much, I'm very like that. And I think it's really important to be open-minded, tolerant. I'm not going to go ahead and necessarily promote it, but live and let live. To those who choose to, good, you know, good on them. And I wish you a lot of success. Not you, but everyone. Oh, um, I, I have no qualms about li- living in the gray people. area. To be, to be honest, even in the U.S., playing online poker is not what's illegal anyway. It's the processing of money. So, for sure. For sure. you know, I, if going by the letter of the law, playing is not what's bad. It's the behind the scenes, the business that's processing the money. And the players aren't breaking any laws. It's those who choose to operate it or whatever it is who may be in the gray. You know, so. Oh, um, I, don't, anyway. I don't think that part of it's gray. <laughs> I think that's yeah. that part of it's in, in the black. That's for sure. Anyway, so that's, uh, you know, I love it. And I think also, interestingly, the fact that it's the type of thing that's scarce to me, 
because it's not available online because there aren't any poker rooms here. And if I were to want to play, you know, in a poker room, I have to fly somewhere. It helps maintain that excitement. You know, all these years later, you know, I still love the game just as much. I'm just as excited anytime I step into any poker room anywhere. It's like a treat. So I think that's that's pretty awesome. And, you know, it worked out really nicely for me in that way. Yeah, I think like scarcity does create the it keeps that feeling of excitement when you're hopping on board a plane and when you, you know, walk into a casino and the cold air hits your face and it just smells and the blinking lights and sounds and the excitement, the energy. It's uh, for most people, it's it's a fun, fun feeling and something to look forward to. Right. Yeah. Who would you say is your greatest influence in the poker world? I mean, who who is currently in the poker world? Like who when, when you were when you entered the industry, right? Like who was most influential to you, and in the way that you wanted to pursue this passion to cover the game of poker and to tell stories and to report? Who would you say? The first, the first name, and you know, there's one A and one B, perhaps that come to mind when I first entered. Truly, you know, this is when it was still you know a nights and weekends type of hobby, and I started out this blog thing. Hardplayerlifestyle.com. Plug it. Um, there would have to be a couple gentlemen named Brad Willis and Nolan Dalla. So who are these people? Brad Willis is still till today, uh, you know, after he's got to have been doing it for 17, 18 years by now, maybe longer. The head of blogging, head of writing for Poker Stars. You go to Poker Stars blog and he's still doing it. And he is probably the greatest writer, storyteller, you know, as far as writing that there is in the game today. Um, and the one B would be Nolan Dalla, who for many years was the director of media relations for the World Series of Poker. And again, when he he's no longer in the industry, but as far as, the, I mean, both of these gentlemen just are just masters when it comes to the pen and how to just use beautiful language to tell amazing stories and to really unearth the beauty from the game through their writings, through the interviews that they've done. Um, so when I first ended, I was like, oh man, like I, just to shake their hand, just to meet them be so amazing. So yeah, they, they would be from the beginning, my, my bigger influences. Brad Willis, I'm less familiar with. I do know that he has a podcast that has gained in popularity over time. And I believe Lee Jones uh, mentioned his podcast, Lee and Brad Willis, uh, I guess, because Lee, longtime Poker Stars um, employee, higher up, mm-hmm. I assume he, he has a, a working relationship with Brad. And yeah. also and, and also uh, Nolan Dalla, who follows me on Twitter, I can quite proudly say um (laughs) reached out to him about having a conversation but he doesn't do those conversations in the poker space anymore but also yeah he's a a giant in in the industry and just um yeah just hugely influential not just for you but i'm sure many 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 other folks on the industry side as well and a great historian of the game you ever want to know a story i remember when uh you know when mike sexton passed uh you know nolan had known him and just the stories he was able to tell about Mike from back in the day, you know, it's just, uh, it's really cool. It was just like, you kind of just sit there like, wow, that's so cool. What great stories. Yeah. I remember being, you know, hanging on every single word back when I didn't know much about the poker world and was just kind of entering it and reading the, you know, the poker lore, the stories behind the scenes of Doyle and Amarillo Slim and Sailor Roberts and all those guys that was what ignited my passion for the game in the first place. And you're right. As I have been in this industry for a while as a professional poker player, that sort of that, – that passion for the game, it, it's kind of gone down a couple of notches, right? It's like I've lived it. I've lived the lifestyle. I've experienced everything. Um, but – hugely hugely influential in my early poker career as well it just made me fall in love with the game right that was that was how i got seduced into wanting to live this lifestyle and be a professional poker player great word i love it and they, you know, they kind of we kind of romanticize it of the back of the day but it it really was special you know they were you know like we say like the great characters you know those are the kinds of scribes 
that really captured the essence of those characters in the written word, you know? Absolutely. Jason, tell me about presence. Why did you think presence was the missing weapon in the arsenal of poker players? So everyone's a mindset champion when they're running great, right? But when you're getting crushed day after day and you haven't booked a win in forever and the confidence is just gone and you're trying to do this thing that you read about in a book or someone told you about being logical and being happy that the money went in good when all you really want to do is cry and hit something at the same time, like how are you supposed to be logical in that moment? But that's the only moment when you really need it. What you need in that moment isn't mindset. You've already read all the mindset books and you already know what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. What you actually need in that moment is presence. Presence is the ability to connect the dots between who you want to be and how you can actually be that person when you need it most. So let's cut to the chase, right? Like, how do you do it? How do you stay more present when you're at the poker table? Well, you get there by first deciding that you want more, right? That you want to grow your intuition that you want to create more flow in your life and that you want to reach your full potential as a player and as a person. And once you get there, you can start trying out some of the exercises and practices that I've put together. If it feels good, if you're enjoying it, you can keep going, right? And if you keep going long enough, eventually you'll find that you're just playing at really high levels, that you feel good with low stress and you're enjoying your experience a lot more, not just at the table, but away from it as well. I personally would love to have as much presence as I possibly can in my day-to-day life. And if you, the listener, right now wants to add some presence to your game, visit PokerWithPresence.com, join Jason Sue's email newsletter, and then schedule a free consult with the Master of Presence himself. One more time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. I wanted to go back, actually. I have something that piqued my curiosity. You mentioned playing in home games in Israel. Yes. Could, could you tell me, like, what does an Israeli home game look like? Like, what's the atmosphere? What are the jokes? Do you, you tell all the same jokes as we do in, in, in the States? Like, how, how, does it, how does it go down? Okay, so the, uh, I suppose it's a little bit of a qualifier or a disclaimer. So you see, you know, like, I, I live in Israel, but I'm from L.A. I moved, you know, moved here 22 years ago many, if not I mean, most of my friends are English speaking, kind of like me, moved from the States or South Africa, England, you know, that's a, that sort of a thing. Other English speaking countries to here, however many years ago. So here and there we have these one, you know, the, the odd Israeli who joins us in the game and then we'll switch to Hebrew, but the games are in English and it's pretty much the same that you'd have, I, I believe, uh, in an American home game as well uh, with kosher food. So kosher food, that's it. So so it's just no, not catered by Armenian food, kosher food. That's that's the difference. Kosher humor. Uh, that's that's sort of. What, what's kosher humor? What what does a kosher humor sound like? Um. Well, I mean, maybe less, a little bit less lewd. Sometimes <laughs> that's all. You know, they say, "Oh, a good Jewish boy would never tell that joke," uh, so, but, but he would listen to one. Uh, so. <laughs> So, so it's it's kind of the same, you know, low stakes. And you know, always what I always do at a top about my home games is that uh, you know it's a translate from dollars to shekels in terms of the stakes that I play for, which is at, you know at this point the equivalent of like thirty cent, sixty cent blinds. Uh, what I will say is unique to one of the home games that I play, and like I call it my dad's game, is that pretty much every game we play is played no limit. And we play like a dealer's choice and it's a new game every hand. And even though it's really small stakes, that's, you know, obviously I've never played against world class players or anything, but doing that sort of a thing, you know, such, uh, it really keeps you on your toes every single hand. You have to know what game we're playing and, you know, all, all the different uh, variables and just, just be aware of it and be able to, to change gears on a dime I think that's improved my game, you know, whatever game I happen to be playing. So that's yeah. unique. Th- think on your feet. Um, yeah. There's a lot of lot of value in thinking on your feet, understanding really the essence of what poker is, the theory of poker at its basest, like at mm-hmm. its basest level so that it translates and you can apply it to games that you, maybe you've never even played before. And yet right. you, you understand general poker theory and that allows you to, 
navigate much more successfully than, you know. And I'll even say, I've only played in one WSOP bracelet event. Uh, It's happened, the first time I did it was uh, summer 2019. And I was like, okay, so what's going to be your first bracelet event? It was the $1,500 dealer's choice mix. That was my first event. And I didn't realize, you know, it's only 400 or so player, 460 players, but like half the field are bracelet winners. And I was like, I don't get it. What's going on? Why is Jeff Lissandro and James Opes, why are they sitting at my table? And I was like, well, these are the only chances they really get to play, you know, games like Badoogie, Badoosie. I'm like, oh, interesting. But like, it really didn't matter to me what game anyone picked. I didn't feel out of sorts, out of, out of my element, outclassed. You know, I don't necessarily believe I have any really strong games, but I don't think I have any weak games. Again, I'm not a professional by any means, but the fact that I have all these years of experience, you know, changing gears like and playing these games no limit, even for small stakes, there was no point in time where I felt intimidated, which was pretty darn cool uh, to say that, you know. So. That is, that's really cool considering you probably accidentally chose maybe the toughest $1,500 WSOP event in existence in the entire universe. I made it to 200 something. I didn't finish the day, but I made it through, I think it was like 10 hours of play, something like that. And it felt really damn good to outlast Lissandro. I'll tell you that. So that was pretty cool. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, I can believe it. And so changing gears a little bit, you know, you're known for being positive, a positive light for the poker community, always spreading positivity and cheer wherever you go. And this year has been trying for you, or should I say last year, because thankfully yeah. that the curtain finally closed on 2020. A couple of weeks ago, you posted a tweet saying that you had been having an impossibly shitty day mm-hmm. and you were in a dark place. So could you yeah. take the listener back to that day, the struggles that you you were having so uh i would say it was kind of one of those days like the the straw that broke the camel's back you know when everything kind of comes together in the perfect storm of crap um you know it kind of builds up to something like that you know like when when you have uh you know i I imagine the the lisa and bart simpson you know when when bart's poking lisa out quit it out quit it when you do it enough times uh, it just sort of gets to you. And look, I mean, we've all, I believe we've all kind of been facing struggles. It's been, you know, the, the word unprecedented has become so used uh, that it's just cliche, but it really is unprecedented. The types of struggles we're dealing with, be they financial or mental or, and, and it's just one of those days that, you know, the the incessant spew of, doom and gloom you know we call it doom scrolling on twitter that sort of thing or you know no matter what news outlet you turn to everything just oh my god the world's gonna end tomorrow and then you throw all the the anger and the politics into that as well and it just kind of got to me yeah you know i i've forgotten a little bit what it's like to plan for anything because you can't because you know everything keeps changing so quickly and you know, you keep talking about, you know, wanting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but like there seem to be these forces that are determined to make the tunnel as absolutely long as possible. You know, the, the, the never ending pandemic, that's not really a thing, but that particular day and, you know, when, when, I don't know, a payment doesn't, the regular, you know, oh, so my kid didn't want to eat the sandwich that I made, you know, the regular crap of life, you know, nothing big, but you put all that together in a, in a good, you know, stew. And I just, you know, <laughs> I so, don't mind. I don't mind the afternoon nap, but this is this happened to be like I want to crawl under the covers and just wake up in a year from now. That was yeah. that. It sucked. And you know, sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a freight train hell bent on running you over and squishing you into the ground, right? And. Yeah. Life life is tough. It's cyclical. Our emotions are thankfully, blessedly transient where yeah. we feel really bad. And then, you know, it's temporary emotion. We recover and things start getting a little sunnier the next day. And I, I think that like regardless of anything else that's happened throughout the pandemic, one of the major things that 
everybody has experienced, I assume, is some kind of loneliness, right? Some kind of disconnect from our fellow man in a way that no living person has really ever experienced in, you know, the last pandemic was quite a while ago. And yeah, it's tough. We're social creatures when we're, when we're caged inside, we don't do very well. Um, some kind of mental health problems start popping up. We start struggling and, and, and the struggle has been real. And as much as I think the lockdowns have been necessary in a lot of cases, and as much as I think some countries could have handled the pandemic much better than other countries, one side effect of the lockdown are these mental health breakdowns and this disconnect from society. And it's tough, and it can break down even the most positive human beings among us. Tell me, this has been cyclical for you throughout the year. What's made you feel better? What's what's pulled you out of this funk in the days where you felt quite bad? Uh, What's pulled me out um, has been my life. I have a great life, and it's awesome. And that's the kind of, you know, I guess, context around this whole struggle. Part of it, and it's weird to say, is like, you know, I personally haven't fallen ill. People close to me, you know, even if they've gotten corona or anything like that, haven't really been sick, you know. It's, you know, it really has been just from a mental side, you know. Things in general are really good. I've had my best year ever, uh, professionally speaking, uh, you know, as far as the business. Um, I get to do what I want to do. I get to wake up whenever I want to. I work from home anyway. In almost four years of working from home, I have three healthy, wonderful, fantastic children. You know, I have a wonderful wife who supports me, you know, and everything that I do, you know, I'm grateful. And I like, I can just, you know, I can go ahead and list my blessings, but the context is I really do have the life that I've dreamt about. And I, I do feel like I'm living the dream. And even with that, I still had the crappy day. So what I normally do, like, you know, the whole, like, being positive, it's not an act. I'm not trying to win a bet, but, like, I genuinely am someone who focuses on very positive things. And even, you know, when when things weren't so great financially or whatever you want to call it, like, it's a matter of attitude and, and looking at one's blessings. And I, there's no reason, you know, it's like I have a little sign that says, life's too short to be anything but happy, Right. And it really is the truth. You know, if you focus on the types of stuff that you can, sorry, can't control, right, then you're just going to rip your hair out and go crazy, right? If you just focus on the types of stuff you can control, which is your own mood and the way you look at things, then, you know, there's so much room to just focus on the positive and, and say, wow, I woke up today, I'm not in the hospital. I woke up today and I've got, you know, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, you know, parents who love me. Um, I am fortunate to be giving charity rather than receiving charity. There's so many ways. I mean, those are the basics, right? So, uh, you know, that's that's the, the basic thing. Beyond that, that specific horrible, crappy, awful, terrible could, day. Can I push back just a, just a little? Oh, sure. Uh, okay. on, on so, the second part of the answer afterwards as well. Yeah, it's just something that you said, you know, life's too short to be anything other than happy. I, I think that we don't always control our emotions. We don't always have the ability to find joy in a day when we just feel horrible, right? And one thing that I really want the listener to reflect on is that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay to feel even hopeless, like things are never going to get better. That is totally okay because... It's a natural, cyclical part of the human experience. And, you know, practicing compassion and self-forgiveness for when you feel that way, I think is vital. And not trying to just kind of like force yourself to feel better because you sure. you can't, right? It's just like trying to force something through logic that it's not a logic problem. It's an emotional problem. Sure. And that that I think is just the acceptance that like, yeah, some days are – shitty and sometimes you feel horrible and and you can't snap out of it but have compassion for yourself you know if if your son or daughter felt bad one day felt really sad about for you know for no reason really whatsoever you know would you punish them and say no don't feel bad 
that you're stupid for feeling bad. Like you should just feel better right now, right? Like no, you you would hug them, you would kiss them, you would have compassion, you would say it's okay to feel bad, right? And right. I think that like just too many times we don't have compassion for ourselves in the same mm-hmm. way that we would for our children or our friends or our spouses and it's just a necessary part of recovery that I think is just vitally important. So sure. there's, there's doctors, you know, they say sometimes you have to, you know, when you got a dislocated shoulder, you have, or you have to dislocate it in order to reset it properly. You know, and I remember a, a rabbi of mine um, who, you know, Orthodox Jewish Israel, the whole thing. So a rabbi of mine who once told me said uh, when you were at your absolute bottom, that is the best, most powerful time to thank the Lord above for bringing you to that bottom, because the only way from the bottom is up. And I was like, wow, what a powerful way of looking at it, right? So it's okay. I agree with you. And then, you know, I wouldn't say embrace the, the, the bad, but it is certainly okay. I, I you know, I, I wouldn't even say that you pushed back. I think that's just a very important reminder. And it is true. Um, to complete my answer, you know, beyond all of the blessings that I was counting, it there was this real incredible outpouring of love. I, I don't know what it is, but when you put something out there like that, people respond to it like if you just if i put tweet like i'm having the best day ever you know this again like if you you pure absolute you'll get like 10 likes or whatever it is but like i'm having the shittiest day ever everyone's like oh what's going on (laughs) but what happened right that's just human nature people are like that um and that kind of happened and perhaps because you said okay I'm, i'm usually just so positive people responded better but you know, whether it was publicly uh, or privately or phone calls or, you know, emails, it was just an incredible outpouring of, Robbie, I'm so sorry you had such a bad day. You know that I'm thinking about you. You're great. You know, all that sort of stuff. But, and it's not like, okay, from him, from her, but it was from so many people. And it was, it was um, really uplifting. And Again, another one of those reminders that another gigantic blessing I have is that I do know a lot of people who are truly wonderful. The type of people who I've surrounded myself with that when they see their friend, you know, collapsing under a burden, that they're going to reach out. How lucky am I? How fortunate am I? So um, I really appreciated that. And from there is, you know, I decided, you know, I always say life gives you lemons. Let's make lemonade. Okay, well, that happened. How can we turn that into, even that, into a positive? Let's write a post about it and share with the community. Well, okay, you know, even even Robbie, so to speak, goes through crap once in a while. Here's how the community, how here's how poker uh, is is helping me deal and cope with the difficult times. Uh, here's seven ways, and I put out, you know, a bunch of stuff that have helped me, you know, during my down times. And I think just as human beings, we tend to undervalue vulnerability and kind of exposing ourselves on an emotional level and human mm-hmm. beings I, i'm in this emotional mindset right now i'm doing a webinar on poker coaching uh, about this topic and it's something that i talk about with my elite students regularly is that we are born emotional creatures and we respond to emotion it's what draws us in right and it's something that's kind of ironic you know when you, you mentioned that people respond when you say you're having a shitty day, but not so much when you're having a great day. And that's the exact same thing that's happening on every news source everywhere, right? Like, you know, if it bleeds, it reads, right? Like they want to be negative. You know, humans are drawn into negativity. We have a negativity bias and like we're pulled in that way. And that's what gets the clicks. That what That's what gets the reads in the news cycle itself, right? And this is just like a, a little minor snippet of that. But I, I would say too that like the poker community is just so giving and generous of their time and their energy and their willingness to offer a hand when somebody's low and on the ground, help them up and give their time and their energy. It, it, it amazes me again and again and again, and it's fairly counterintuitive and not something that outsiders would really expect from the poker community at large but it's just i think that that's a part of our nature as an industry and that really gives me a lot of pride in the way that that folks just regularly pick one another up and that's been my experience too um and in a way you know you kind of realize like 
it's a kind of a small industry in that way. You know, not like tiny, but it's it has that intimate sort of feel. You know, like we all have this common bond and it's so easy you know, through the media of Twitter, Facebook, you know, whatever it may be, or, you know, you happen to listen to the same podcast or, or something like that. You share these common experiences. There's that kindred spirit kind of feel. Um, and, and I do think it's certainly really beautiful. And poker is an exceptionally emotional game where mm. we feel our emotions in every single session that we play at various decision points, our emotions flare up. We feel bliss and joy and excitement, and we feel doom and despair and just complete devastation. Right. Sometimes, you know, within the same hour, right? So it's like... <laughs> or in this, the same hand. Yeah, the e even the same hand, right? Like, it's just an, an emotional roller coaster. And I can't remember what book it was, but it, it, I read in a book that... They found something interesting as it related to college hazing and fraternities, and they were trying to outlaw hazing. And what they realized was everybody that had been hazed to get into their fraternity pushed back at the idea of eliminating hazing because it was such a hard experience that when they made it through the other side, they were bound by that blood it was a brotherhood that was forged through strife and mental and physical anguish yeah. and they just valued that experience even though it again pretty counterintuitive that you would value a <laughs> demoralizing awful experience in that way but that's just what human beings do and so in the same way when you go through poker like we have a bond with one another. We know what it feels like to be at the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. And yep. we have that, that natural empathy is created when one of our own face those kind of struggles. Sure. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had how much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself coach thomas and occasionally past guests of the chasing poker greatness podcast for now and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future the price of admission to the live poker power hour is 100 free all you've got to do to get your invite is head to chasingpokergreatness.com and hop on the vip newsletter no more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. So moving on from the emotional side of poker, shifting gears to an article that you wrote in mid 2020 titled dear mr adelson ah yes tell me about how that article came to pass so um i felt like at the time it's something that i had wanted to write for a very very long time um i feel like i kind of have a unique perspective uh and a unique voice opinion to share on him because I believe that I'm positioned in such a way based on my lifestyle, where I live, uh, my religious beliefs, all that sort of stuff, and then political beliefs even, to understand and appreciate both the good and the bad that he caused. Industry-wise, you know, everyone knows that he was the biggest opponent to online poker, uh, the force and through his lobbyists and funds that essentially prevented uh, online poker from becoming legalized in the United States for so long. And perhaps now we may see that change. Perhaps, we don't know, but um, things are looking better than they have in a long time in that front. Um, and obviously that costs so many people their livelihoods, caused so much pain, anguish. And, you know, it certainly affected me on the media side of things. You know, when you have a a smaller industry, then the pie, piece of pie is smaller for anyone involved. So uh, I can only imagine the types of opportunities I would have had 
uh, if the industry were bigger over the last few years. Could, on the positive side, uh, could I could I just yes, one sure. one moment? Could I could I go a little bit darker from yes, somebody that you know experienced Black Friday and read read the horror stories? I would say that there there's one story on two plus two about a person who was engaged to his fiance and her family was anti-gambling, uh, anti-poker. They, they were on the fence about it. They were very unsure. And he had most of his funds on a poker platform. I, I can't remember which one. It doesn't really matter. But right. when Black Friday happened, he all of his funds were locked up. His fiance's family basically said, I told you so, and she called off the, the wedding. And he found himself on a bridge having to be talked down by police officers on the scene. And I know that that's an extreme version, but I promise there are people who lost their lives, whose lives ended because of Black Friday. So I just want to, you know, I don't want to understate the impact that it had, not just on the industry and the bigger players, but on a very micro level of these human beings and their lives it was exceptionally exceptionally destructive incredibly tragic that's uh it's very sad and um yeah it's it's important to get those stories out there to know the full extent of the damage that was caused you know and then so many of us believe and for what reason you know so many people you know they would just say well that's what he wanted that that just sucks and there's no there's no painting a, a rosy picture of that yeah um the converse or the to complement that you know the opposite side is i'm also aware of a tremendous amount of good that he's done with his funds you know at this point i think you know even the most uh, cynical takes on his passing even mentioned that he paid the salaries of all the employees at, you know, throughout his properties since the pandemic began, Sands was the only company to do that, not Caesars, not MGM. They were in a position to. It's great. He certainly didn't have to. Some would say it's the minimum that he had to do. I imagine, I don't know personally, but I imagine there's a story similar of an employee out there. I could, you know, supposedly quote it to you who, because they continued to get paid since March of last year, didn't, you know, obviously didn't lose their job, didn't lose their home, didn't lose their car, house. And, you know, th there are these micro effects of that too. That's just one specific illustration. Living in Israel, I'm witness to exactly the type of philanthropy that he did. He donated $25 million to the largest Holocaust museum in the world here, Yad Vashem, um, ambulances, research programs in universities. Um, you know, that's, and there's a lot of just, that's public. You know, what he did, he did like something called Birthright Israel. Just, it means more to someone who's Jewish, but anyone with a Jewish heritage between the ages of 18 and 31, if you want to visit Israel, he essentially funded a free 10-day trip for you that you could just get in touch with your heritage. You know, obviously like a personal interest type of thing, but, you know, those are good things too. And what specifically disturbed me is that so many in the industry just cast this person, this, this individual as evil. When I could say, well, no, he does some things that I hate. He does some things that I like. Why hate the person? Let's focus on the actions. And when to get back to your original question of dear Mr. Adelson or Adelson, that was just like, hey, I'm not here to attack you. You know, if somehow someone from your staff or whoever reads this thing, maybe I can be a representative who comes with like, let's just talk as individuals. Let's sit down and say, what is it that you don't like? I'm coming as someone who acknowledges all the amazing things that you do. I'm coming as someone who's been hurt by some of the crap, unfortunately, from your lobbying. Let's talk and see if we could work this out in a way and, and I could, you know, or put you in touch with people who I know in the poker industry who could if not change your mind, but maybe get you to remove your resistance to it. I never got any sort of response directly from him, but there are a couple people who I know who do or did work closely with him. I don't know if he read it, but they reached out to me on their own saying that was a really damn good letter. 
thanks for writing it. What happened as a result, I don't know. And, you know, bygones, that sort of thing. But I'm happy that I finally, after years of wanting to put it out there, actually did. And realizing that I'm going to get possibly a lot of hate from people in the online poker sphere who only experience the negative. And you saw, unfortunately, after a person passed away, oh, rotten hell. And, oh, his wife is still alive. And, you know, we, I mean, that's just, you know, whatever. So there's always going to be people on that extreme who, 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 whatever. But I try to present a very balanced type of picture. And, and poker players are, are, are logical. You know, if, if, if possible to remove one's emotion from the situation and just examine the, the, the factors and the elements in front of you to approach it logically, I tried the best that I could. I think it's important for all of us to internalize that nobody exists as good or evil. Yeah. Human beings exist on a spectrum and... That's just the way that it is. Nobody's pure good. Nobody's pure evil. We all do good things, and we all have many regrets about some not-so-great things that we've done in our lifetimes. And so it's important to sort of understand that. I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. I, I think that lots of people die every single day, and it didn't really – I didn't celebrate. I didn't shed a tear. It was just a thing that happened on a specific day when he passed away. Um, but like you said, like there – of course – it's totally expected that there would be people who celebrate the death, and then on the same token, it's totally expected that there would be people who call those people that celebrate monsters and say that no death ought to be celebrated, yada, yada, yada. Like All this stuff is totally predictable in the cycle of human behavior. In my mind, lots of people are born and lots of people die every single day. He was a, an opponent of online poker for a very long time and spent more money than anybody as it relates to regulating and legalizing our industry and caused a bunch of us to operate in a gray area with a lot of anxiety and stress that was – it was unnecessary. But we could go back to the very beginning of when all this went down and say that online poker, when party poker was making money hand over fist, they could have invested some money into lobbying so that UIGEA never happened. That was a thing that they could have done, and they did not do it. So – that was the first strategic mistake by the poker industry at large. And so a lot of the blame falls back to whoever was leading those organizations at that time and them not having the foresight to see the potential roadblocks and challenges that could hamstring our industry for decades to come. Sure. I mean, it was in its relative infancy at the time. Um, but it, like, in a way, it's sort of, I mean, at least for someone like me, someone like you, I suppose, it goes back to something I said earlier in a slightly different context. We, I don't know what positive benefit is achieved by focusing on things we can't control. If we focus on what we can control, this is the current situation now. How do I make the most of it? Okay. And then, of course, how, how can I possibly change things for the better? But, you know, and again, I, I'm not one to judge someone who you know had their life ruined or whatever it's difficult to let go of such an emotionally traumatic thing but the important thing i i believe you know possible we have the current situation let's move forward and you know one of the biggest opponents standing in our way of, of growing our industry is it's no longer standing in our way let's push forward and and, and make online poker great again yeah i mean it, it's certainly there's certainly a path right and that's a void the void that Sheldon left, that vacuum, regardless of what his son's view of online poker or the industry is, it's a void that cannot be filled. It's a, yeah. it's a, va a vacuum that cannot be filled by by his sons or, or his family. And so, yeah, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, to start the charge into doing better and growing our industry back to, like, what it was before, right? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if it'll be the Wild West of all 50 states or anything like that, but I, I certainly think that really bright days are ahead. More states are going to fall in line and legalize, possibly ride the coattails of uh, sports betting, and there's going to be interstate player pools. Uh, the next five years are going to be, you know, if not fantastic, then really great. 
compared to the last many years. I could say that, you know, the Wild West of online poker, it's often how online poker was described in the mid, uh, early to mid and even late 2000s. And after Black Friday to Mm -hmm. this is how I view the landscape of online poker. If that was the Wild West, then 2011 to 2021 is a barren Mad Maxian wasteland of awfulness where it's just (laughs) – it is way beyond worse than the Wild West of the early 2000s and like some semblance of normalcy or something that we can count on is 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 so wanted and needed for you know the online professional and even recreational poker players Mm -hmm. and again i will just say you know whether you're professional recreational industry whatever it is at the end of the day you know the rising tide will lift all boats you know the more places where it is legalized the more places where you know, governments are getting their taxes and the more people are playing, it really just helps everybody. So it's this, you know, in, in a very positive way, it's a universal cause we can all rally behind. Absolutely. Write your senators, write your congressmen, write the people who make these decisions. I, maybe hold off until maybe this pandemic's in the rearview mirror because I have to imagine um, online poker's probably not at the top of the priority list right about now, but maybe, maybe one day in the next couple of years. Uh, so before we call this round to Robbie, I wanted to ask you about the orbit. This was a show that you launched. Tell me about the genesis of the orbit, how it came to be. Awesome. Well, thanks for asking. Um, well, uh, I can touch upon something we mentioned earlier about vulnerability. Uh, it's something that I thought of, I'd say about five, five and a half years ago now, that's when I first conceptualized the idea um, of this round table poker discussion of, you know, four talking heads, you know, sitting around a virtual poker table talking to each other uh, in like a politically incorrect, uh, you know, with Bill Maher style or like a John McLaughlin type of thing, you know, type of setting, if anyone's familiar with the McLaughlin group. I conceptualized it, but five and a half years ago, I wasn't in a position as far as know-how, networking, stature, whatever you want to call it, to make such a thing happen. As time went by, I never forgot about the idea. And I was like, okay, let's, let's, let's try it. Let's think, whatever. And it just got to a point, I, and I wanted to move more you know, beyond my stuff that I do for cardplayerlifestyle.com. I wanted to move more into um, doing video media, video content. And the point came, I was conducting an interview with someone and uh, trying things my way. And I just like, oh, I'm so sick and tired of not being able to do a great job. Like I know how to write. I know how to blog. I know how to do certain things. And I was like, why, why am I just so bad at this? So the vulnerability was I just put this, I don't know, 500 word post on Facebook saying how completely frustrated I am being unable to do, to execute on video content in the same way I do on written content or other types of stuff that I do. If anyone, and I'm not saying, no, don't give me someone from Fiverr or whatever, like give me some, like there's gotta be someone out there who can help me. And a couple guys, shout out to Des Duffy and Lee Wiltshire. They're, they run something called the uh, APAT, the Amateur Poker uh, association and tour. Uh, I think it's amateur. Together. Oh no, I, I don't know what it is. APPT, you said? APAT. APAT. I was going to say the amateur professional poker tour, and then I realized no. that's that <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, they work they work together with the party poker actually. Um, so those two guys and who I I've known kind of does through just you know here and there we were Facebook friends. We've done a little bit of correspondence. And they're like, hey, you know, the type of thing that you're describing as far as wanting to produce video, we can do it. <laughs> like that sort of, that, that, that me being vulnerable and finally just coming to a breaking point where like, well, I'm just throwing it out there to the universe. Well, the universe responded. And there was a lot of strength, a lot of power came from that. It's a, kind of a long story, but this is the truth. This is how the orbit came about. And I was like, well, this is the type of things I want to do. I've got this channel, twitch.tv slash poker, you know, and, 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 and I was like, well, I can't, I don't have the money necessarily to hire you guys. I'm like, well, 
oh, why do we, why do you need to hire us? Let, let's be partners. Like, oh, that's a good point. And like, you know, 100% of an idea that's sitting in a desk drawer is worth a lot less than 33% of an idea that's out there, you know, and that's executed. And, you know, they've got expertise in marketing, in digital display and streaming. And like, I could just focus on the areas that I knew how to do, you know, work my network and, and, and contact base to put a panel of four people together, think of the right topic, and then they would take care of the stuff that I don't know how to do well. And we've got a great show. And it was just like a dream come true. Five and a half years it's been sitting like, oh, that we've got something. We And then credit to Lee for coming up with the name of the orbit. We've done seven episodes as of uh, this recording. Um, and the response has been awesome. You know, it's kind of like a industry insider show, but also something that to a degree that anyone who's not into poker, I believe, could sit and say, oh, wow, that, you know, that's pretty cool. That's really interesting. And when you see who we have on, we try to have a variety of guests, you know, big names, less big names, men, women, Europeans. Uh, give British. us a list. Give, give the, peak, peak the, peak the listeners' interest. Like, who are the guests that, that you invite on to this roundtable discussion? So we had one episode, which was like the old school episode. We had Norman Chad, Matt Savage, Phil Hellmuth, and Ellie Elezra talking about the old days and the characters. We had an episode with uh, Phil Galfond, Daniel Negreanu, Rob Young, and Alex Scott. Alex used to be the head of poker at Microgaming. Um, and they were just, you know, it was the first time where you have people representing different companies. You know, Rob with Party Poker, Daniel with DG, uh, with, with GG, uh, Phil with Run It Once, and Alex was Microgaming. And they can talk to each other. How often do you get the companies talking to each other about these issues, Right. We had an end-of-year media special where we had uh, Will Schillebeer of Poker News, David Tuckman, uh, Jeff Platt, um, and Donnie Peters, uh, you know, from Pocket Fives. Um, just let's look at the year that was, like a, a media year. We had, uh, you know, lots of good names. We had Eric Denis from the GPI. We had uh, Jonathan Little. We had uh, Ari Engel on talking about all sorts of issues, live poker, online poker, when will it come back, Max, masks, plexiglass, like we've really covered a lot of ground. We've averaged, I think, about one show per month, and it's uh, kind of like this special attraction kind of a thing. And, you know, we're just, I enjoy doing it. I think it's pretty cool. You know, like, as much as I already know a lot of these people, then they're all seated together. I'm like, before we start, I kind of like to, oh, this is so cool. Cause I'm, you know, I would enjoy watching the show and here I get to host it, which is really, really cool. Um, and, and again, the response has been really awesome um, from within the community and, uh, and, and, you know, we've gotten a lot of phenomenal feedback and some nice press coverage as well, um, which is sincerely appreciated because, you know, even if we didn't, I would still love doing it, but to know that the work that you're doing is appreciated by people and see some YouTube comments and some Twitter engagement. It just really feels great to say, oh, you know, okay, that's going to motivate me. Let's, let's do the next episode. Yeah. That that's why you put it out there, right? To hear those positive ways that it's impacting people's lives. And when we close down here, Robbie, tell the listener where they can find the orbit and where else they can find you on the World Wide web. Thanks. So, um, twitch.tv slash poker that is the official address for the orbit um, and also the card player lifestyle youtube channel and the twitch.tv slash poker facebook page <laughs> you just search for that there so that's where we premiere the orbit and all of the episodes are stored you can go back and watch uh, each one's about an hour long sometimes up to an hour 20 hour 25 um, so that's the orbit um, and, you know, pretty much there's my website, cardplayerlifestyle.com, new stuff many times a week, usually every day, at least a new article or two. Um, but pretty much anything and everything that I do, I promote it on Twitter at cardplayerlife. And I've also got a newsletter. If you just go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, it's once a month. And that kind of acts as like a, a little bit of a recap of my monthly poker activities, whether it's articles I've written or podcasts that I've done or uh, being uh, a guest uh, interviewee on Ch Chasing Poker Greatness or 
or guest uh, articles that I've written. So, uh, and oh, I do giveaways. So follow me if you like money and free stuff as well uh, <laughs> as hearing this voice and, and you know, looking at this face. Yes, and, and unlike the Chasing Poker Greatness VIP newsletter where I talk to you every single day, Robbie holds out for once a month. Um, so, Robbie, thank you very much for your time and your energy. It's always a pleasure, and I look forward to having you back on, hopefully, in the near future. I appreciate that a lot, Brad. And, you know, again, like I said, one of the things that gives me strength is just that uh, – that personal interaction in an age of social distancing, we do not have to be socially distant. And to just know that this conversation just gives me a lot of energy and, and fuels my batteries for another day. So thank you very much. And thanks to everyone who listened. I feel the exact same. Thanks, man. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.